Okay, Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahalon and Chilon. They were Epaphrites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpha, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahalon and Chilon died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the con- uh, from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpha kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your may the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Thank you, Steve. Um, The book of Ruth is um, a love story. Uh, Many of you will know it really well, some perhaps uh, less well. Uh, But I hope that um, as we look at it this evening, uh, and I'll give you an insight to its message, and it will bless you, uh, whether this is your first time looking at it or whether uh, you've been studying for many years. Um, Chapter 1 really sets the scene for the rest of the story. Uh, And it's summed up perhaps best in verse 22, which says, so Naomi returned 
and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Uh, in a nutshell, uh, chapter 1 uh, tells us how an Israelite family uh, fell on hard times. They emigrated to a far-off country uh, where the husband and the children die, and a broken mother, Naomi, comes back home with a widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth, in tow. Uh, I want to look at what chapter 1 says under three headings. Uh, the time, the place, and the people. So firstly, then, I want us to think about when these events took place. Uh, we read in verse 1, in the days when the judges ruled. And I think we need to ask ourselves why God wanted to add that particular phrase into the text of Scripture. Uh, the story would have made every bit as much sense uh, if we uh, just started it with the words, there was a famine in the land. The, the story would have made every bit as much uh, of a story uh, just by opening with the famine. But it doesn't. It starts with, in the days when the judges ruled. Uh, this isn't just a piece of padding, because the story is a bit short and we need to fill it out a bit. When I was a student and I had to do a 10,000 word essay, I used to come up with all sorts of phrases to sort of spin it out to 10,000 words. Well, this is the word of God and God doesn't use his words lightly. And he's put that phrase there to tell us something specific. And it actually points us back to the immediately preceding book, the book of Judges. Actually, the immediate preceding verse the last verse of the book of Judges, where we read a phrase which occurs twice in the book of Judges, which says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's the context in which this story of Ruth is set. In the days of the Judges, God's people, Israel, were in a really sorry state. Uh, we see a cycle of Israel backsliding, leading to judgment upon them. Uh, and then they turn back to God, so he raises up judges or redeemers uh, to rescue them. Uh, it was a bit like the Wild West. Uh, the wickedness and anarchy amongst God's people hardly bears reading. There was no rule of law. There was no temple. No one was following God's law. Anyone who wanted would set themselves up as a priest. Theft, murder, rape were rife even amongst God's people. And as a result, God brought judgments in terms of famines and marauding enemies on the nation of Israel. And so we read in the opening of the book of Ruth how in a time of famine, a time of God's judgment on his people, that Elimelech left Israel as an economic migrant and went to sojourn in Moab to escape from it. He's in a famine, he's starving, he was living in chaos, and he's had enough. In those days, there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right 
in his own eyes. Nowhere do we read that Elimelech prayed about his decision or that he had guidance, guidance to go. But when the going got tough and the famine was no doubt very hard on him and the family, Elimelech thought, if this is all that there is for me, I can do better on my own. I can go somewhere else. So he upsticks and he moves. The grass is always greener, isn't it, on the other side. I'm sure all of us can think of times where we've been in difficult circumstances and we look at other people and we say, if only my situation was like theirs, it would be so much easier. When God led Israel out of Egypt to Canaan, he promised to bless them there in the promised land. And as the story of Ruth opens, Elimelech brings all his worldly wisdom to bear on a difficult situation. And he says, I know better than God. Let's go to Moab. Did you um, spot a little progression in verses 1 to 4? Verse 1, he sojourned in Moab. Sojourn, a very brief stay. It wasn't his intention to go and stay there forever. Verse 2, he remained there. So the stay lasted a little bit longer than he anticipated. Verse 4, he lived there. And we're told it was 10 years in all that he was there in, uh, in Moab. It became his permanent home. Elimelech wasn't planning to live out his days away from the place God had provided for them. It was just a brief expediency so he could cope in difficult days. But the weeks turned to months, the months turned to years, and he ended up dying there 10 years later, far from where he should have been. I wonder whether anyone here is questioning whether the place you are right now is where God wants you to be. It's not working out as you expected. You haven't got a job, you can't feed your family, your relationships are all going wrong, surely you can do better somewhere else. So without prayer, without seeking God's will, without a direct sense of leading, you're tempted to turn your back on where God has brought you to thus far. Well, God does sometimes lead, doesn't he, through our circumstances. He uses them to push us or pull us in the directions that he wants us to go. But when he does that, it's always in alignment with his revealed will in scriptures. Elimelech's decision was not just foolish because he didn't pray. It was foolish because it was directly at odds with God's revealed will in the Bible. It didn't line up We've got what God had already said to his people. Our feelings can be wrong. We can read things into circumstances that are subjective, but God's word, the Bible, is never wrong, and Elimelech's decision to move went against what God had already said to him. The Moabites were not neutral. They had a track record 
of opposing God's people. Even as the Israelites journeyed out of Egypt, Balak, the king of Moab, hired a false prophet, Balaam, to curse them. And it ended up with the Moabites uh, leading the children of Israel astray and ending up being excluded from the assembly of Israel for 10 generations. Well, in Bible terms, a generation is 40 years, so we're talking 400 years. They were excluded from coming into the assembly of Israel. The Israelites were never to give their children in marriage to the Moabites. And as the months turn to years, and the Limelech gets more and more comfortable in Moab, where did he ever imagine his two boys would be able to get their wives from? So, not surprisingly, they end up marrying Moabite women. And if there had been any children from those marriages, the children could never have been Israelites, would never uh, have been accepted into God's people, cut off from God's people forever, and Elimelech's family line extinguished, the family name wiped out. As Elimelech takes him off, himself off to, uh, to Moab with Naomi and his two sons, Marlon and Chilean, they're leaving the place God has promised to provide for them to go somewhere God has specifically said no. So let me give you a warning now. The decisions that you make today affect you, your children, your grandchildren for generations to come. The examples you set, the things you allow in your home, the programs you watch on TV, the friendships that you form, the business relationships you enter into, all of them send a signal to your children about what is acceptable for believers to do and what it isn't acceptable to do. That's why the New Testament tells us that elders... Sorry, my mouth's going dry, Beth. Could you get me a drink? Um, it's why the New Testament tells us elders must be people who can rule in their own households well. Uh, and we do well to consider that, don't we, when we look at appointing a new pastor? Uh, thank you. Um, we do well to think about that as we look at appointing uh, a new pastor, don't we? You know, uh, it should be someone who rules his house well, who, uh, who, whose children are believers, we're told. And so we need to be uh, careful that the example that he sets in the home is an example that follows into uh, church life uh, as well. The book of Proverbs tells us, train up your children in the way they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. You know, what we are uh, in public, we specifically need to be back in the house as well, don't we, in our homes. Uh, the Bible warns us uh, uh, about uh, being unequally yoked with unbelievers. Uh, that's usually taken, I think, to mean uh, forming relationships uh, and who you're going to marry. You know that it's wrong for a Christian uh, to marry uh, an unbeliever. And, of course, that is true. That 
does have an application there. But they're not the only relationships that we have with one another, are they? We, we have business relationships. Who do we go into business with? Who do we form partnerships with? Uh, we have friendships. Who are your closest friends? Are they people who are on the household of faith? Unbelievers will only ever pull you away from following Christ. Dare I say some believers will only ever pull you away from following Christ. But we need to uh, look for those we form relationships with and form uh, our closest friendships with and make sure that they're people who will strengthen us and build us up and who we can strengthen and build up as well. Well, Elimelech didn't ask these sorts of questions. He didn't ask the question, where does God want me? And as a result, he lost his sons and he lost his life in a land far from God. Well, God is sovereign, isn't he? Uh, Elimelech may have run out on him, but God has a purpose for this family. With no social security, uh, no husband, no children, Naomi is more or less forced to go back to Bethlehem, the place she should have been uh, all along. So secondly then, I want to think about the place, I want to think about Bethlehem. We thought a little bit about when this happened and what was going on, what the implication of that is for this story. Uh, but I want to think about the place, Bethlehem. Um, when you hear certain key words, they trigger thoughts in your mind, don't they? If I say 1066, what's the first thing that goes through your mind? Battle of Hastings. If I say bonfire, what's the first thing that goes through your mind? If I say Bethlehem, what's the first thing that goes through your mind? The incarnation, the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. But when the writer of the book of Ruth mentions the name Bethlehem here in verse 1, he isn't thinking about Christmas. We can't help it, can we? Our minds go straight there because we're conditioned to go there. But even as the passage was being read, we uh, hear the name Bethlehem of Frata, and our minds go straight to Micah, don't they, in that prophecy that was uh, repeated to the wise men, and we think Christmas straight away. Well, actually, when you read Ruth, you're not altogether wrong if that's where your mind goes. This story of Ruth happened a long time before the time when Israel had a king and well before there were any prophecies linking Bethlehem specifically to the Messiah. And you can tell that in verse 1 when it says, in the days when the judges ruled. So the writer is looking back from a later time at the time when this story happened when Israel didn't have a king but he is looking back from a time when Israel did have a king. And just as we think about Jesus, whenever anybody mentions Bethlehem, as soon as Israel had a king, anyone mentioning the name Bethlehem would immediately think, ah, yes, that's a place where King David was born. And so the writer here, in mentioning Bethlehem, he's trying to link the whole story to the place where King David was born. 
I don't want to steal the thunder of Ant when he comes to speak on Ruth chapter 4, but if you're any doubt that that's what's in the writer's mind, look at chapter 4, the end of the book, uh, and he specifically tells you what, what his purpose is. And he tells us there that Ruth is the great-grandmother of King David. What we have here is a story about someone who is in the family tree of King David. But for you and I, knowing as we do now that the Lord Jesus is descendant from King David, that book takes us another thousand years on, doesn't it? And immediately we think about great David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a point not lost on the New Testament writers who specifically mention Ruth in the genie through this book in future weeks. It's a book which points us to the Lord Jesus. So I'll come to my third and final point, the people. And I'm really only just going to mention two people here, Naomi and Ruth. In Moab, Naomi recognises that she's not where she ought to be and heads back to the place God always wanted her to be in Bethlehem. Twelve times in chapter 1, did you notice that? What was repeated twelve times in chapter 1? Twelve times the word returned. It's about going back. It's about returning. Does that resonate with you all? or with any of you, that you know you're not where you ought to be right now. I don't mean so much your physical location here in church tonight or in Egbeth or in Liverpool, but spiritually, you know your relationship with God isn't what it ought to be. Spiritually, you know you're not where God wants you to be. You've been mixing with the wrong people, drifting away from church, drifting away from God. Well, let me say now, no matter how far you've fallen, no matter what mess you've gotten yourself into, there will be no blessing until you turn around and go back to the place that you should be. Naomi came back with nothing, no dole, back in those days, no land to work and earn a living, no husband, no children, no job, no hope except falling on the mercy of those who might have remembered her from 10 years beforehand. Naomi's name here is significant, isn't it? It means pleasant or beautiful. I wonder what high hopes her parents had for her when she was born to give her that name. But when turning back in Bethlehem, she says, don't call me back, sorry, don't call me Naomi anymore, pleasant, call me Mara, bitter. It'd been a bitter life those 10 years away from the people of God. The years in Moab taking their toll on her. It was no doubt humiliating to come back to Bethlehem How had she gone out, you know, all full of what was going to happen in the the future? But here she is, she rocks up. She's a failure. It was a bitter pill to swallow. But it was in Bethlehem 
where God met all of Naomi's needs through a redeemer, Boaz, who we meet in chapter 2 and 3. So let me urge you, if, like Naomi, you know you're not where you should be, return to, to the Lord, and he will graciously and gently meet your needs without humiliating you, uh, just as Boaz didn't humiliate Ruth in the way he treated her, and without making it harder for you than it needs to be. So I just want to finish by thinking for the last few minutes about Ruth. I said in the New Testament only two women are mentioned in the family tree of Jesus, Ruth and Rahab. Neither were Israelites. As a foreigner, Ruth, I'm going to... Um, as a foreigner, uh, uh, Ruth was excluded from God's people. She wasn't and could never be part of God's people. But the story of Ruth shows us how God takes the impossible and makes it possible. Those who are cut off from him can not only be included in his chosen people, but become pivotal in God's rule in this fallen world. Ruth's declaration of loyalty to her mother in verse 16 and 17, uh, to her mother-in-law rather, uh, it's a wonderful declaration of that underlying love that she has for Naomi. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. It's a beautiful loving sentiment from Ruth who obviously cares for and loves Naomi. She had every opportunity to return to Moab when Orpah went back uh, and to her father's family and to her father's gods but she gave it all up to care for and look after Naomi. That is the essence of true love isn't it? Giving yourself to others even at great personal cost to yourself. But there's an obvious problem with what Ruth says. The beautiful sentiment, the care and devotion that Ruth clearly has for Naomi counts for nothing. Naomi's people, Israel, could never be Ruth's people. She was a Moabite. Naomi's God could never be Ruth's God. Moabites are excluded because of their history and what they had done as the Israelites left Egypt. And what Ruth declares she wants here can never be the case. It's wishful thinking. It's pie in the sky. But what is impossible for men, God makes possible. And he does it through Boaz. The word used to describe Boaz later in the book is redeemer. He is the saviour through whom all of Ruth and Naomi's desires are realized. It's as Boaz takes Ruth to be his wife that everything changes for her. Naomi's people very much become Ruth's people. Naomi's God very much becomes Ruth's God. The separation and isolation from God's people that was all Ruth could have ever expected is turned completely upside down. 
and Ruth is taken into the family of Israel through a marriage to a redeemer. Perhaps there is someone here, I don't know you all, uh, but perhaps there is someone here. You see that others in the church or in your family have a living and a vibrant relationship with God and you want it so much, but you know it's not yours. You know it's something that you don't have yet. Well, the answer is in a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our redeemer. He is our savior. What is impossible for us who are separated from God because of our sin becomes completely possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. If we turn to him, he will not turn us away and he will become our savior too. There'll certainly be a need to turn around on our part. The Bible calls it repentance, a turning back to God, perhaps even losing face with our old friends and an old way of life. But unless we turn to Christ and ask him forgiveness and to take us into his family, that we can never be part of God's people. Later in the book, when it becomes clear what was on offer uh, through Boaz, Ruth turns to Naomi and asks for advice about what to do. Uh, it can be hard sometimes, can't it, when we're being faced with things of eternity uh, and we're not quite sure. Well, if speaking to someone uh, helps, let me urge you, speak to a Christian that you know, speak to me, speak to Steve or anybody who you know has that living relationship with God and ask them to help you and guide you into how you can come to know this living saviour for yourself. Ruth's reward was far greater than anything she could have ever imagined for herself, had eternal consequences as she became an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Well, if we turn to Christ, when we turn to Christ, the reward that is on offer is out of this world, something with eternal consequences, something we can never uh, imagine or think without Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account of Ruth, who was separated from you by the fact of her birth out of the family of Israel, and how it, the story leads us to understand how it is possible for her to be accepted by you. Lord, we pray that each of us would so understand and know that for ourselves, Lord, and follow that and put it into practice that we can be absolutely sure and certain that we have eternal life, that we have a, our sins forgiven, and that we know we have a home in heaven when we die. Give us that assurance, give us that confidence that we are right with you through the Lord Jesus. Amen. <laughs>